0: This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day-to-day, how they got there,
1: and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge, and we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode, and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Sarge, who are we speaking with today?
1: Luke, today we're speaking with Michael Zavataro, who is a front-end engineer at Koala, one of Australia's fastest-growing online retailers. Before getting into the tech space, Michael started his career as an environmental consultant, having completed a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Forensics and a Master's of Science focusing on Environmental Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. Michael soon decided his skills might be best applied elsewhere, and took the leap into the startup world, starting his own company, Maria, a compliance platform empowering the new generation of digital laboratories. Now working in a completely different field to that of his studies, and with a broad range of experiences working in companies of all sizes, Michael is a big advocate for taking calculated risks when you're young and challenging the status quo of different industries. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi,
2: oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So you're a front end engineer at Koala, and uh, Koala's uh, best known for making mattresses, and and is now venturing into other things, um, including including sheets and some some sofas, etc. What does a front end engineer do? Uh,
2: okay, so for me, what I do at Koala is I'm a part of the digital team, and at Koala, we obviously have to maintain all the e-commerce websites. So we're in both Australia and Japan. Um, And for us, we don't actually have a physical brick and mortar store. Um, We did have a showroom, but we, you know, we're starting to renovate it and change it all up a little bit. But for us, 99.99% of our sales is all predominantly on the website. So the e-commerce platform. So a big part of me and the digital team that I'm part of is we have to go in and maintain it. We have to add new features to it. We have to fix bugs that, we, that may have crept through. Um, we take a lot of the designs that our design team come up with. So they could design a new cart or they could design a new, I guess, what we call a product form. So when you go to a landing page for one of our products, to be able to add that product to the cart and to eventually go throughout the checkout process, we have to make sure that's a very seamless and engaging experience for our customers. And so what I do is I take all that kind of those ideas that these designers come up with, and essentially um, build it in code. So I have to write everything in code. And what we do at Koala is we kind of really do make sure that everything kind of works from the start. So when we launch a new product, it launches successfully. And when we have a sale, we ensure that the sale is successful. So that's kind of what I do at Koala. It's really kind of build those, those elements.
1: So when your when your design team comes in and gives you a design, is that like a, a hand hand drawn sketch that you then need to somehow turn into something digital? Uh
2: no. So we don't no we, we don't we don't work with hand drawing sketches or anything like that we use digital platforms so there's a few out there um, that we kind of use that allows the designers to collaborate and kind of work as a team so they'll start with like some new product page essentially and then within the design team they'll kind of hand off to other designers to review it and amend it and make changes and then once those are kind of been approved by the leadership team um, they hand it off to us as the the engineers, and we have to then go in, look at what they've done, understand kind of their thinking and the user experience and the user flow, and then build it within code to make sure it kind of works with the rest of the site um, and also make sure it doesn't kind of break stuff we've already done in the past, which it does a lot. So that's, what, that's how that kind of handle process goes.
0: Michael, we've spoken to a few different people that work in different areas of, I guess you call it like tech broadly. And one of them mm-hmm. was say a product manager and, and um, product developer, that kind of thing. So from our understanding, they kind of look after the whole product workflow and then they get people like UX designers and, and front-end engineers and back-end engineers to come in and build this thing that leadership have said, okay, this is a good idea to do. Is that roughly a good kind of synopsis of, of how that works. So can you just explain where the front end engineer kind of sits into that flow?
2: Yeah. So that's pretty much exactly right. So we have these, what we call PMs essentially, and they pretty much ensure that what we're doing is within the timeframe. And if things are going to get delayed, we let them know and say, Hey, look, okay. So I know we were going to launch this feature this Friday. Unfortunately, you know, something's come up, we can't really do it. They have to then manage expectations from the other stakeholders. And that could be leadership, that could be customer service. That could be whoever that they're working with to ensure, kind of like, what we're doing is going to kind of be fulfilled within a certain time frame. So what they do and work with us is they'll generally generate. We we use agile essentially at Koala to ensure that we um, go through from the the point of like starting the issue, what we call issues. So starting the feature request, start building that to then getting it reviewed and then getting it signed off and other type of workflows. They ensure that kind of goes smoothly. And if there are any kind of road bumps, um, they, they talk to us about it and then they kind of relay that. We still do talk and directly talk with marketing teams to understand what they essentially want and their ideas. And also with the designers, because sometimes when you go, do, you go through like a PM, Sometimes things can be lost in translation. So it's better to kind of have a chat from the source. Uh, But what, but yeah, as you said, that is, that is, that is correct from what, what, how that kind of gets handled.
1: When you're dealing with all these different stakeholders, how do you balance everyone's views and and make sure that you're hitting the mark?
2: That's a really good question because sometimes you you don't always hit the mark perfectly. You get 90% of the way there. And sometimes you have to have to just compromise. And for us, I kind of really do feel bad for designers because they come up with these incredible designs, and just the reality of it is within a certain time frame, we just sometimes can't achieve that. And that's when we break it up. So v one, so version one of a feature, we really, really do want to do everything the designers or marketing want us to do, but within that time frame, it's just not possible. So we do kind of engage with them and say, Hey, look, we understand, we recognise that, yeah, what you want us to do might not be achievable by next week we're happy to kind of continue to work on this as a V2 feature as well and expand upon your bigger vision. And most, 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 in most cases, that's perfectly fine, and that's kind of the accepted practice is okay. But a lot of those kind of big things, those big features, um, get broken down beforehand, and that's another big part of the PMs is to understand, okay, how big of a feature is this? And if it's too big, can we break it down to have more engineers work on it? So go from like a, a large size ticket or large size issue. Uh, can we break it down to a smaller size one? So it gets a bit more fluid and a lot more quicker. So there's there's little things that we can do to kind of engage with stakeholders and manage expectations. And so that's what we kind of really do employ at Koala is that strong communication between teams is, is so vital for us.
0: You touched on the agile kind of workflow or process Mm -hmm. before. Do you want to just describe kind of what that is and obviously Koala used that and maybe what are some other um, work style principles or or processes that, you know, people working in tech might get exposed to when they come into industry?
2: Yeah. So agile is pretty much the industry practice these days. I'm sure that there are some other older, larger corporations that may use something like the waterfall methodology, which isn't as, I guess, easy to work around. But for us and what we do at Koala, we ensure that we're not 100% always locked into something. And so we can really pivot around certain things very quickly and very efficiently. So for example, you know, we've had instances where we've been building a feature and then for whatever reason, uh, we've just had to kind of pivot and not launch it or delay the launch of something or we've built something that we've really thought that would be a huge impact for our customers. But then we realized, okay, the impact and the amount of resources that we put into it, we're not getting much back from it. So we pull back on that. And that's what Agile really allows us to do is to kind of really be, I guess, Agile in what we develop and what we focus on, where we put our resources. We're not always locked into something. And that's the real power of it. And it's allowed quality to really grow really, really fast in a very short amount of time.
0: And is, does that mean you kind of break chunks down into, right, we're going to deliver, you know, point. A 10% of the major project in two weeks and then kind of reassess where we're at after that. And if we need to make a left or a right turn, we can. Is that the kind of yes, breakdown of sure. it? Yeah.
2: So we we break it up into sprints, what we call sprints. Um, and you can have one week sprints and you can have two week sprints or three week sprints. It really kind of depends on the team and the team dynamics and that type of stuff. And what you do in a sprint essentially is you assign X amount of work between all the engineers or you know, all the designers. And within that, that let's say two week sprint, you have to get all that done. And if and if you start realizing that things are, you know, getting out of scope, um, you either pull back or you call in for help. And so what sprints allow us to kind of do is deliver X amount of work within a time frame. If things go out of scope, we can move that on to the next Sprint to the next three weeks, or we can bring in more help to kind of get it done or break it up to a smaller parts. So keep things, in, I guess, in perspective and make things more manageable.
1: And when, when you're launching like a product, what is it? Like how long how long could that take? Are we are we talking like days, weeks, months?
2: Oh okay. months, if not years. Yeah. I mean it really does start with like a, a product concept idea from like the actual physical product designers. And that goes through a lot of iteration and um, that takes months and months of work. And then finally, you know, we get the debrief about it. And so the designers have to start having a look and they start chatting with the the, the, the product designers to make sure that their understanding of it works. And then marketing has to do all the assets and all the content and really give that product a bit of a voice. And then it gets us. So we're kind of like the, the end of the chain, I suppose, and that entire product launch um, workflows. We're we're the guys that we have to actually put the product on the site and hopefully it goes, with, you know, it goes it launches without a hitch, um, which doesn't always. But we're always on top of it, so it's never a big issue for us. But for us, yeah, it, it is a huge amount of work between teams and a lot of discussions between marketing and the designers and the UI UX designers and the engineers because sometimes engineers get a little confused about um the type of product it is so we have to kind of really talk with amongst everyone between teams so it's a lot of work yeah
0: Michael apart from the obvious you know the, the on tool um skill of coding and, and whatever the the technical side of things you have to do as a front-end engineer what would one or two kind of skills or um facets of a younger person coming through be that are useful in industry that people who are kind of, you know, maybe in university might not really think about when they're, you know, put into a big team and have to work with different people across different segments. Um, what's useful.
1: Um,
2: okay. I'll give two answers to this and this is kind of from what I experienced and working with teams and people, whatnot. Um, the, the two big ones for me is problem solving. I mean, you have to be good at solving a problem. Um, Sometimes the problem is just so complex you need to ask for help, which is perfectly fine. And it's honestly, you never expect when you're going into a workplace or starting a job that you're going to be kind of on your own to work through an issue. Um, it's definitely recommended, as, uh, at least what I recommend, is just always talk with other people. And if you need to have like a brainstorming session, have a brainstorming session. But problem solving would be uh, one of the ones. And then the second one would definitely be, Ooh, knowing how to engage with your peers and your colleagues. And that's a big one that no one ever teaches you. Um, and you're probably, you probably, if you're going to the workforce for the first time straight out of university or high school or from like an internship or whatnot, you, you, you very quickly realize that uh, playground talk isn't the most acceptable talk in an office environment, especially within a corporate environment. Um, and so it's sometimes it's a bit of a shock to people when the certain jokes they can't say because, you know, now they've got you know, a very diverse range of people that they work with and certain jokes are just inappropriate. I mean, they've always have been inappropriate, but for a lot of people, just knowing how to engage with colleagues and let's say within the leadership team and within for partners or the CEO or the founder and how to kind of present yourself at, I guess, um, corporate events, no one teaches you that. So you either sink or swim and you do learn from a lot of your mistakes. Um, but as long as you don't keep making them, you'll be fine.
1: It sounds like there might be a bit of a story there, Michael. Is there anything that uh, springs to mind when when you talk about uh, holding yourself in the right manner in the workplace?
2: Um, there's always a story, but I haven't <laughs> done anything. I haven't done anything that's it's, that's been too embarrassing. I mean, the stories I do have are because of what I've witnessed other people do um, and I always think to myself I'm so happy I'm not that person right now because nothing where you have like a an end of financial party or a Christmas party at the time you don't realize you know next week you have to go back and see that person again right So um, seeing the drama unfold is always is always a little bit funny to see but no I, I won't I won't share any of my personal stories because
1: That's all right. We're not about throwing anyone under the bus on this show. So that fits in well with our themes too. Michael, I do think it's a really good point though
0: for um, maybe taking a little bit of a different spin on it with students, you know, at university going to whatever it might be like cocktail networking events held by different industry players or even at university, like, you might not be doing anything completely stupid, but you might also not be talking enough. You might not be going up and introducing yourself to people who in two or three years time, you know, you might be sitting across an interview table with, or they might be a good person to be able to email or message on LinkedIn. Hey, I've got this question about applying to your company. Um, And if you're kind of sitting at the back of the bar or the back of the restaurant or wherever you are talking to your mates, instead of talking to industry people, um, I think that's a good point as well. And I've seen plenty of people, you know, not make that, um, uncomfortable step to put yourself out outside of that comfort zone. Um, but when you do, you certainly gain connection. So there's that kind of side to it as well. I think.
2: Networking is an art form. You have mm. to be good at networking. And this is the thing. It's a thing like that universities and colleges and whatnot, they really do fail is they just don't get you ready for the real world. And so you kind of finish your university degrees. you paid, I don't know, 50,000, 100, 200,000, how much university degrees are these days? And then you get your piece of paper and that's it. It's just complete cut off, And you're like, huh, what do I do now? And so you think, okay, should I start applying for a job? So you start looking at LinkedIn and Seek and, and Draw and those type of places. But honestly, the, the the jobs, I mean, the the rule I was told is, most jobs aren't actually advertised on these kind of job boards type of things. Um, you're more likely to find a job or be offered a job. If you meet someone in person and have like a one-to-one connection with. And that's why when I've kind of finished university, that's what I, I purely focused on networking events and going to meet these people that work at companies. And there's things little tricks that you can do to kind of make yourself stand out from the crowd, because remember, you're going to be competing with other people from your cohort and probably other people with more experience than you. So you have to really kind of sell yourself and be good at telling a story, your story, essentially.
1: I think that's a a great call and probably a good segue into your background, Michael. So you've got a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science as well, and you've largely focused in the environmental sciences space. Do you want to spin us through um, what doing a Bachelor and Master of Science was like at UTS and and why the focus on environmental sciences particularly?
2: Yeah. um, So... My, my time at UTS, I loved UTS. I love, I love studying Bachelor of Science. And honestly, I recommend anyone who's thinking about what to study you see, get into the STEM. So, the science, technology, engineering, mathematics. It's, it's definitely an incredible experience that opens a lot of doors once you finish. And so, for me, I studied environmental science because in, within Australia and within a lot, of, a lot of countries around the world, environmental is a huge impact for them. So, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, Canada there's a huge emphasis on the environment and there's a lot of laws and regulations that really aim to kind of protect the environment. And so for, for me, working, in the, in working within the environmental field, was it seemed, like a, it seemed very logical. Um, and I loved it. That's why I kind of went on and did a postgrad in it. So I did a postgrad research and essentially what I was looking in, in, in my research side of things was looking at ways to imp- improve air quality by using um, plant walls. So if you kind of think of plants, you know, you have them on the ground and in the soil, that type of stuff, is, well, why don't we start putting them on the walls and on vertical buildings? Um, so there are, uh, there's a lot of famous buildings around, around the world that do essentially that. And Singapore is, I would say, Singapore is a country that is definitely the leader mm-hmm. in, 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 in plants and urbanisation and, and greenifying, I guess, the, the cities. And I was always inspired by that, and that's something I really wanted to research is, okay, we have these plants, we know they're. Good for the environment. How can we use them with technology? So, these plant ball systems that can actively help filtrate the air with them. And that's what I really focused on.
1: They remove a lot of carbon from the um, atmosphere, right? Or from the air. Yeah, that's
2: right. So, they remove carbon, they remove. Uh, um particular matter so what what you call PM, so particular matter 10 and particular 2.5 so that's that's very very small tiny microscopic um, micro tiny little particles um, they they what else they did they actually they, they, they house the house of the in the soil they provide an incredible um, I guess environment for bacteria that the, then kind of then uh, god it's been a while since I've had to talk about this then biodegrade um, um, things like benzene and hydrocarbons that are in the air. So anything that emits an odour, um, at least internally what we used to say was generally bad for you, and that's not always true the case, but things like um, pens and cleaning agents emit these VOCs, these volatile organic compounds. And what we found was these, these bacteria within these the, the, within the plant substrate, so within the soil, within the actual Um, Plant walls were actually very good at minimising and reducing that and biodegrading that. And so you start looking at ways you can actually, how can we make that more efficient? How can you make it easier for these um, microbes to really kind of do their job in a much more efficient way? So you look at changing the water and the lighting conditions and then you're changing the plant species and you're trying to put all the dots together, figure out what's the most optimum, um, I guess, um, relationship between all these different elements to make them do what
1: they do. It sounds like real problem solving.
2: It is. It is problem solving, and that's why I really wanted to highlight the fact that you know, at, at university, really try and hone in, figure out how to solve a problem because there's so many different ways. Uh, what we, what we, what I like to say, is there's many different ways of skinning a cat. And so it doesn't really matter how you do it as long as you come up with a solution that solves the problem and that's within the scope and within resources and that type of stuff. And that's an incredible key um, experience to have and the knowledge to have.
0: Michael, do you want to step us through once you've kind of come through the education journey, it sounds like you did some pretty cool stuff while you were at uni. Um, How did you go about getting your first job in industry and kind of why did you want to get into the environmental um, consulting game and kind of what was that yeah. And how, did you enjoy that and kind of walk us through that experience?
2: Yeah. So, the so research for me wasn't really, it, you know, the, the amount of the people that do research are incredible people. You learn an incredible wealth of, of knowledge from them. So it's, it's an incredible experience, but for me, it just didn't really, my heart wasn't in it. And so I had, I was always wanting to do a PhD, that type of thing. But when I started doing my master's and that type of thing, I kind of realized it just wasn't going to be for me, which is all fair. Um, And I'm glad I learned that now before I started a PhD. Um, But once I kind of finished my master's, I wanted to really kind of use what I had learned at university in the real world, essentially. So I started applying for jobs. I did a lot of networking events. I went to a lot of, um, meetups and a lot of recruitment drives and those types of things where they get all these people in these networking events and you start meeting recruiters and people working at the companies you want to apply for, which I highly recommend people to go and do. Um, and for me, I, I, I applied for one particular company, which was JBS and G, and they were, I would say, they're probably the, the leaders in environmental contamination. And I was successful and I was able to start working there. And it was fantastic. I I really did love my time there and the people there were incredible. They were so, you never really understand how much knowledge people have until you start working with them. And I learned so much from my old team and then the clients and the working on huge construction sites around New South Wales and managing the contaminated land and telling all these big um, foremen what they can and can't do, which is always going to create a little bit of friction. So you learn a lot about yourself um, doing that type of thing. Um, and so, yeah, that for me was, I just really wanted to kind of do what the university trained me to do in the real world and work in a corporate environment. For some reason I had in my mind, like I just really wanted to work in a Sydney office in the CBD. I don't know why, um, but that just seemed to really appeal to me. Um, and then, yeah, so I did that for a while and it was great. I enjoyed it. Um, but it wasn't, for me, I started realizing that that industry that I was working in was 20 years behind the time. And we were still so reliant on paper. And it just blew my mind that you'd go in these large construction sites, take these soil samples, water samples, or air quality samples, whatever contamination is, is there. And you have to fill out pages of paper documentation then get all sent to the laboratory to be analyzed for your client. And it just blew my mind that I'll you know, the, the environmental engineers or the surveyors all using digital means to do their job a lot more quicker. And that really kind of, that stuck with me and it stung a little bit. I had to write so much paper and that's kind of why I decided to eventually leave and and start my own startup and kind of really try and solve that problem.
0: That's a good segue. You've you've kind of jumped in there for me. Do you want to walk us through Mm -hmm. what the startup was and what that experience was like?
2: Yeah. So I would say the startup was called Maria. And it was probably one of the best experiences I've ever done in my life because A, you become your own boss. So you, you start learning how to manage a company, like a real company. So you have to do the finances, you have to do all the, the taxation, all that type of stuff, and the accounting, all the not-so-pretty bookkeeping that you have to do. So you learn all about that. And then when you have an idea of a solution, you have to start building, the, you know, the, start building it. And for me, I, I started learning how to become a software engineer so I really spent a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, what the core problem is and how can I make the the, the solution um, usable for people that would use it every single day. And that's something you got to remember is when you kind of start building your, your startup or whatever it may be, is people are going to essentially use it every single day. So you want to ensure that people love it. And if it starts creating fiction or starts adding more roadblocks to what was the the solution beforehand, then it's not going to go very far. People aren't going to use it. People aren't going to pay for it. And so a lot of time and, and effort went to making sure that what I was doing and speaking with customers and users and and decision makers and people that would actually pay for it would actually want to pay for it. And so I went through an incubate uh, incubate program. Uh, we actually, I actually won a, uh, an award to get into that program, which was very exciting at the time. Um, And so I was able to get through that get some money, get some funding and backing for it and really travel around Australia, meeting with these high executives in these different places, in these different laboratories and and just talk about the problem I'm just trying to solve. And there's nothing more. Not to
0: interrupt, but just sorry to interrupt. I mean, um, but on that point where you're like, okay, I realise that I need to make this thing, whatever it's actually doing, it needs to be attractive for customers to use and people need to be able to want to get on there. Like that's a pretty um, mature perspective to have as a, founder like did you read particular books or did you talk to particular people that kind of brought that to light for you early
2: um the, the the problem a lot of startups get themselves into is they build a solution that they think they want to use themselves it's going to be the solve the problem which is just not the case um just because you might have that problem doesn't necessarily mean that. A thousand other people are going to have it, and so when you're starting out, you want to ensure that you're talking to the right people and not leading them on, um, and not kind of giving them the answers. So you, you you learn how to actually really ask questions, and and you start realizing, okay, this 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 solution that I this is the solution for a problem that I thought was a big thing actually isn't a big deal. Like people are happy to do it manually or happy to do it a certain other way. And so the way I kind of really learned that was, yeah, I I, I, I read some books but then the books that you do read are gonna be obviously biased to a certain way. So you have to be very careful about what you, who you listen to and who you talk to as well. That was well, the one bit of information that uh, that I was taught when I started to Incubate was I was talking to all these people and then they pretty much rained me and I was like, you're not talking to the right type of people. And it suddenly, uh, clicked, it suddenly clicked in my mind that yeah, I, I'm just hearing what I wanna hear and not what the real problem is. And so that's why, you know, we say in startups, pivot a lot. You know, if, you, if you're not pivoting every week, you're not running a, a proper startup. And so that's kind of the things that, yeah, I really do learn.
1: I think that that ensures you get a very well-rounded view of of the of what different people's perspectives of the problem is and, and how mm. viable your solution to that problem is.
2: Mm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
1: When you started, you, or when you started Maria, were you uh, tech savvy at that stage? Did you know how to code and... Or was that something that you had to pick up so you could then build out your own product?
2: No. So one of my biggest regrets was probably not doing a computer science degree. I think if I did that, that would have made my life a lot easier. Um, but at that time, I already had done two university degrees and I just didn't have it in me to do a third. So to kind of bridge that gap, I figured, I guess the, the boom of boot camps really kind of started at that same time. So I was very lucky. So, I actually moved to Melbourne and did a, a boot camp where that pretty much gave me the knowledge and the, um, the, I guess, the confidence to do what I was able to do.
0: Um, just give us a 30 second spin through what a boot camp is just for people that aren't aware.
2: Yeah. So, a boot camp essentially is a crash course in, I guess it depends on what a boot camp is, but for a software, let's say web, web development boot camp, it's pretty much a, a crash course on web technologies learning the fundamentals of coding problem solving step, you know, having to go step by step when writing code, um, testing your code, that type of thing. So it essentially kind of gets all the industry standards and industry knowledge and compresses it and condenses it into one particular period of time. So it's very, very intensive. Um, it, it's, it tries to summarize, I guess, two, three years of, um, Software engineering and IT knowledge into a very small uh, and a couple of months, essentially. So it is very intensive. They do they don't always cover everything. Um, what I was learning in the boot camp wasn't the tech stack I I'm you know I use in Marooey and what we use at Koala. It was very different. But learning how to problem solve and being able to understand how code work, you don't. It makes it a lot easier to pick up the next coding language. So
1: at a principles level, is pretty useful.
2: Yeah incredibly useful. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is also very difficult, um, but it's also very, very useful. I loved it. I made a lot of good friends from that, that experience.
0: As a comparison of, you know, you've, you've gone through a bachelor and now a master's and, mm-hmm. and now boot camp, like you, you seem to have a, a few misgivings about, um, I, I guess the, the purposes of the universities and do they fulfill, you know, their, their main job. What would you say in terms of the comparison between you know a 10week boot camp to really upskill you for industry compared to a you know six years at university?
2: Um, I'll say this. I'll say boot camps and these you know, short courses they aren't, they aren't always going to get you to where you think you're going to go. Um, I actually did another short course in growth hacking at a, another kind of online digital place, and that was very interesting, but it didn't really open any doors for me. Um, universities I mean no one no one disagrees that the university finance model is flawed it just doesn't work and people are leaving these poor kids are leaving universities a huge amount of debt Uh, for what for degrees that they most likely aren't going to use in the real world Um, but universities are still going to be have a very strong presence and influence Um, at the end of the day if you want to become an architect you have to go to university. If you want to study medicine, you have to go to universities. If you want to do science, at the end of the day, you still have to go to universities. But what we're starting to see now is these these new fields and industry where you don't really need a university degree at the end of the day. Like, you know, I didn't have to go to universities and study computer science to become a software engineer at a very large e-commerce company. Would it have made my life easier? Probably. But that's just not how... You know, my life ended at the end of the day. I did two science degrees at the university. Now I'm a software engineer and I didn't learn any engineering or software engineering at university. So, what I do tell people because I I talk to a lot of, you know, young people and that whatnot who are starting out is still going to university and having and completing a degree, at least you've got a safety net. You know, if if what you want to do in the real world doesn't work out, you can always go back and fall back into what you studied. And at the end of the day, I probably could go back and become an environmental consultant. Uh, that's not what I want to do, but, you know, if push comes to shove, yeah, I could easily go back. So universities, at least for me, you know, they, they're still very relevant, but we're seeing a lot of potential where people are thriving and incredibly well without having to go to universities. It's more than one way. And if you don't get to universities, it's not a big deal. There's so many different pathways
0: on that point like i'm just putting myself in shoes in the shoes of you know a year 12 or early university student that sees you you know you've got your science degree and now you're working as a front end engineer at a massive corporate um kind of on, on, online retailer are you super smart and that's why you're able to teach yourself this stuff really quickly or is it really accessible if you if someone um, is dedicated enough to spend some time in their own time to learn these skills and then are they good enough to apply to a, to a company um, mm. to get into a junior software engineering role?
1: Uh,
2: anyone can learn how to code and that, that is just so clear and evident. Um, you don't need to have an IQ of 1,000. There, there are some, I mean, there's always going to be some areas with industry where you, you need to have like a PhD and that's no, no difference in computer science. But anyone can learn how to code and pick it up. You know, writing your first hello world app is incredibly easy. Um, what is slightly challenging, though, is figuring out where to start. I mean, do you want to become a, a mobile developer? So do you want to start using Swift or SwiftUI? Do you want to become a web developer? And then web, the web technology, there's so many web technologies. You've got React, you've got Vue, you've got JavaScript, you've got Ruby. You've got the new kid on the block, which is Svelte. Um, and it's changing so fast. So there is, unfortunately, at least from what I experienced, it is a high water to in but once you kind of now down what you want to do, do you want to become a Windows engineer? Do you want to, so do you want to work in C or C++ or C Sharp and working .NET frameworks? Um, or do you kind of want to, once you kind of figure out what you really want to do and what you focus on, then it gets a lot easier. But anyone can absolutely code. I mean, there, there are people that code from the age of six to seven. You don't have to be a genius. Once you understand the syntax, which is essentially the grammar of, of coding structure, then it it, it is really easy to pick up any other language and start going through that. But there is a lot, there's huge emphasis on problem solving and understanding how input does something and then you have to spit an output essentially. Where does that input come from? What form is that data coming through? You have to kind of really think through like the big picture and that type of stuff. But yeah, it, it, it is very easy for you to pick up and start doing. There are so many fantastic free resources out there to really start having an incredible career in it
1: throw that question back on to you, Michael, where, where yeah. should one start? Say we've got a, a young person listening today. Um, where, where's the best place for them to go if they want to uh, dive into to coding and, and learn a bit more about tech?
2: Um, um. I am very jealous about the stuff that young people get to do now. Like back in my day, I'm not that old, I'm You're not that old no. but, <laughs> but still, there's been such a huge progression between what was happening back in my day and to now, like, um, you know, you can build robots from little kits. Um, you have now Arduinos and you have Raspberry Pis. That wasn't a huge thing. That was probably just starting out, you know, um, 20 years ago, well, eight years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but there are some fantastic places you can go to. So there's a really, if you want to do web development, one place I recommend people start with, because it's, it's, it's free, it's very accessible, and it pretty much covers almost everything you need to know, is a place called Free Code Camp. It's an organization. It's not for profit, anything like that. But it's, it's incredibly resourceful for people to kind of understand the different web technologies that go into making a website and how HTML works with CSS and how CSS works with JavaScript and why you need the three different kind of elements. And then what if you want to put another framework like React or Vue and how does that kind of change the, the flow and design and, and engineering of your websites? So FreeCodeCamp is a great place to start. Um, if you want to start in mobile, I'm a bit of an Apple fanboy. So I, Apple has an incredible um, amount of free resources to pretty much get started in their ecosystem. Um, so you can have a look at Apple Books and they have like their free Swift engineering um, uh, learning some type of stuff. They also have a very cool cool app. I think it's called um, Swift Playground or something along the lines of that where it's, it's more of a game-based um, learning environment. So you have like this little character and you have to solve these problems that um, with code essentially. And while you do it, you kind of learn about functions. And, and hierarchies and, 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 and having, part, having to pass through data information through these different functions whatnot to kind of have an outcome. And that's another great free resource that Apple provides as well. And it's always updated, so it's, it's always very relevant. And there are a lot of other free resources online as well. Like there's the Mozilla um, MDN, Mozilla Development Network, and that has pretty much, a, again, another uh, tutorial about starting and creating your own website. Um, so the good thing about software engineering and web development and mobile development or whatever type of engineering you want to do is you don't have to invest a huge amount of money to do it. You can pretty much just find a tutorial and just start hacking at it. And you learn from, you learn from your failures and you'll come across these problems that you just can't solve and spend hours and weeks and months. And then it suddenly clicks and you get it. And that's what you learn is how to kind of work through those, those heartaches.
0: Yeah. We've asked a few people that question and the, Overwhelming response is um, it doesn't matter what language you do or it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what project you're doing, it's like just get started on something yeah. um, and find a problem that you know you kind of want to solve, and then that'll be make it fun for you and that's kind of where you get the snowball rolling.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. just start something. don't try and be perfect. Your first bit of code would not be perfect, so don't spend hours trying to, to perfect it. Just get it working. that's all that really matters.
0: All right, Michael, well, we've covered a lot today and I think there's some um, real nuggets of wisdom in there for students and anyone really listening, which has been awesome. Is there anything that you would want to leave our listeners before we wrap up?
2: Um, I guess, I, I guess, you know, I, I've seen a lot of these young people kind of leave universities and leave high school and they just don't know where to begin and there's, you just won't know you won't know for the next five ten years some people do they know exactly what they want to do but for most of us um, we don't and so realizing that what you train to do at university isn't the thing it's not the end of the world honestly it's 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 just one of those things you just have to kind of know where you want to head do you want to head toward becoming x or y software engineer or become a designer and just start something that's the big takeaway. It's just just start something. Um, it doesn't really matter what it is because along your path, your path is going to change a thousand times. You're going to be pivoting. But as long as you're heading towards something like an end goal, you'll be fine. And so don't worry if, you know, you work in a corporate environment and, and last six months or a year. Um, it's not a big deal. Um, a lot of people don't last in corporate. Um, so, yeah, just just take it day by day and don't, don't look at the giant mountain you have to climb. Just look at the little hurdles you can climb at that period of time that you have the capability to do. That's what I would recommend.
1: Awesome. I think I think that's fantastic advice. We should all stay agile um, to, mm-hmm. to, to use your language, Michael, and uh, yep. a great place to leave it. So thanks for coming on the show.
2: No, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks, Michael.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, (TYPPAU). our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.